So, good morning. I hope everybody had a a good sit this morning. So this morning we'll look at a case from the transmission of the light, uh, also called the Denko Roku, and this is case number one. Shakyamuni Buddha realized enlightenment on seeing the morning star. He said, I and all beings on earth together attain enlightenment at the same time. Kazan's verse. One branch stands out on the old apricot tree. Thorns come forth at the same time. So, next week we commemorate the awakening of the Buddha. This week, many Zen centers and temples are beginning or are well into their Rohatsu Sashin, this week of silent sitting, this time that is meant to be a tribute to the effort made by Shakyamuni, but not just a tribute. Perhaps more importantly, as a time for us to realize what the Buddha came to see. To be free from suffering, which really means to be free from the prisons of the mind, of our self-imposed limitations and the limitations we impose on others. And through that freedom, and this is the point, through that freedom that comes both suddenly and gradually, we are more available to others, no longer dominated by reactivity, dominated by the flitterings of our minds as they bounce from one thing to the next. To see that this one fabric of reality is us. As practitioners, and I use that word very consciously, we honor the Buddha's own awakening by practicing and working towards our own enlightenment. In other words, this path, this eight-fold path, it's an active path and not, not a passive thing. And so we look to the Buddha with respect and admiration, but we also know that he was a human being like we are. In fact, when he was asked someone, if he was, he was asked by somebody if he was a god or a deity, because they sensed that he was somehow different, some difference in him, he simply said, no, I'm not a god, I'm not a deity, I am awake. And awakeness is a human quality. So in our tradition, we commemorate the Buddha's birth, his enlightenment, but the thrust of our energy is not put towards lifting him up, but rather 
lifting up the Dharma. At the end of his life, the Buddha said, let the teachings be your island and your refuge. And so for this case today from the Denko Roku, this book called The Transmission of the Light, this fourth book of koans that we investigate together, those who are drawn to koan practice, this book was compiled by Japanese Zen master Keizan Jokin, who was a 13th century master and the great-grandson in the Dharma of Ehei Dogen. And it's a compilation of enlightenment moments, these stories that have been passed down of the first 28 generations of teachers in India, and then the 23 generations of teachers in China, and then finally the first two teachers in Japan, Dogen and his successor, Koon Eijo. So there's a total of 53 of these stories, and each one of them has a brief uh, taisho or commentary by Keizan, and then this appreciatory verse. In this case, Keizan's verse says, One branch stands out on the old apricot tree. Thorns come forth at the same time. And so in thinking about this verse, it struck me how important it is to see, you know, both sides of the Buddha, to really appreciate on the one hand that he was just a person, a person who lived for a brief time, who taught like any other teacher, right, who made mistakes like any other person. And at the same time, he was extraordinary. The Buddha was a person who, out of great pain, left his family, his young wife and child, to do what must have been in his mind something that couldn't be ignored. (coughs) All he knew was that he had to find out what this life was about. And so he left what was familiar, what was comfortable. And just to say a few words about this, I have found that within myself and with many people that I've worked with over the years that this kind of change to leave what is familiar, what is so comfortable, is often what is called for. And what is most familiar is often the very painful habit patterns that we haunt And so it can take a tremendous amount of courage to leave what is familiar, even when that familiarity is so painful. So while some people wince when they think about Siddhartha leaving his family, we have to remember that it must have taken a tremendous amount of courage for him to do that. And make no mistake about it, it must have been very difficult. I was thinking about the pull that the Buddha must have felt and thought that it's really no different from those inner struggles that we all have. What in modern psychological terms we would call an interpsychic tension, where 
two or more sides really feel in conflict. In Zen terms, having this inter-psychic tension is actually can be a good thing, a painful thing, but a good thing. You know, most of the time, all the forces in society encourage us to make peace with and put aside our inner conflicts to settle for. And yet in Zen practice, we might say that this inner conflict is instead something that should be brought forth, examined, kept front and center so that it can be worked with. Because this is where our lives really come to life. I have found that when we try to ignore our inner struggles, that's when we dull out, when we sort of go to sleep in our life. And so this story of this very ordinary man, the Buddha, this very ordinary inner struggle is so important. And at the same time, this man was quite extraordinary. Extraordinary courage, extraordinary resilience, his fortitude, and his patience, his compassion and insight. And when we read the Mahayana Sutras, we also encounter many passages where the Buddha is downright otherworldly. We encounter fantastical worlds apart from our own with bodhisattvas and other mythical creatures and miracles. All of these may seem to take us away from this real world. But another way of looking at these passages is that they are meant to challenge our notions of reality. So many of us lack imagination, unable to think of anything beyond our ordinary way of viewing ourselves in the world. And that imagination, lack of imagination, can stifle us. How many times I've heard from practitioners, I'm too, I'm too old to come to Sashin or take up a koan or to realize my true nature. I'm too busy, too anxious, too depressed. I have too many obstacles in my life to really practice. I'll just settle in for a little peace and quiet. And so this is an important part of our practice to be able to go beyond our conventional ways of thinking, of experiencing. Of course, right now, there is this revolution happening in mental health treatment as researchers and clinicians are f now feeling more free to explore using clinical studies of psychedelics. And what this research from Johns Hopkins University, as well as others, is showing is that in many cases, a single dose of psychedelics can alleviate depression. So why is this the case? For some, 
psychedelics can just widen that narrowness that can so easily settle into our life. These chemicals can so suddenly and drastically change somebody's perception of themselves and how they experience the world. Of course, like anything else, a lot of what determines whether those changes stick is what somebody does afterwards with them. So psychedelics aren't a cure-all. They're certainly not for everybody. And anybody who does use them should use them with care. But we don't need psychedelics. One way that Zen practice works with widening us is through koan practice. Last week, our guest speaker, Shanna Smith, offered a few words about a koan from the Blue Cliff Record involving Ryu Tetsuma, this powerful teacher who was a Dharma heir of Isan. And when she came to see, see him, when she came to see her teacher, she walks in and says, or he says first, old cow, you've come. And as Shanna reminded us, that was a term of endearment. Ryo Tetsuma said, tomorrow on Mount Tai, they're having a feast. Are you going? Now, Mount Tai was over 600 miles away from Isan's place. So unless he had an airplane back in um, 9th century or 10th century China, of course that wasn't going to happen. Why did she ask such a strange question? Isan's response was to stretch out and lie down, as if to say the feast had already been eaten. Where is Mount Tai? No distance. In another well-known koan, a master says that it's like a buffalo that goes through a window. Its head and body and horns all go through, but its tail cannot. Both of these koans, as well as many others, fly in the face of our ordinary perception of space, of time, of what's possible. When we come at them with our conventional way of thinking, they seem impossible. Most people hear these and throw up their hands and say, you know, I don't need any of this crazy Zen stuff. And yet, when we do that, of course, we miss an opportunity to transcend our limitations. We reinforce what in education I think they call uh, a fixed mindset, which is the very nature of suffering. In order to resolve a koan, we have to let go of the very ordinary way we see things, of the way we see ourselves. And koans help us experience the world in a very different way. But not by thinking about them, not by philosophizing about them, but rather by experiencing them directly. And that experience 
happens within the context of our very ordinary life. That very ordinary act when the Buddha to be looked up and saw Venus, the morning star. How far at that moment was that star? For the Buddha's first successor, Mahakashapa, it was when the Buddha held up an ordinary flower. And for a friend of mine, it was when he watched the bubbles swirl down the drain as he was taking a shower. In each of these cases, for a brief moment, the self was forgotten and the world suddenly changed. Dogen said, to study Zen is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. The other night I shared a passage from a little book by Robert Aiken Roshi in which he explores the teachings in a very creative and playful way. It's a book full of these koan-like dialogues using animals as characters like Badger, Brown Bear Roshi, and Zen Master Raven. In the opening dialogue of the book, we encounter Raven as he inquires into the meaning of the Buddha's looking up and seeing that star. And just to read it for you, it says this, When Raven was living near Jackrabbit Roshi, he visited him frequently to inquire about the way. One day he asked, I hear the Buddha Shakyamuni looked up from beneath the Bodhi tree and saw the morning star and announced his realization. I get the feeling that something is missing from the story. What happened when he saw that star? Jackrabbit laid back his ears, closed his eyes, and said, He realized the truth of mutually dependent arising. Well, thought Raven, Jackrabbit Roshi seems to know his Buddhism, but maybe I'm not a Buddhist. So he flew off to see Prairie Dog Roshi. When he announced himself, Prairie Dog poked her head out of the burrow and blinked in the bright sunshine. Raven told her about his encounter with Jackrabbit Roshi and asked, What happened when the Buddha saw the morning star? Prairie Dog, uh, this got cut out of my notes here, but Prairie Dog Roshi said something like, he realized the oneness of all things. I'm not a metaphysician, said Raven. So he flew off to see Moose Roshi and found him feeding on waterweed in the creek at Cedarford. Perching himself on a rock, he croaked for the Roshi's attention. When Moose looked up, Raven told him about his encounters with Jackrabbit Roshi and Prairie Dog Roshi and asked, What happened when the Buddha saw the morning star? Moose dipped his face in the creek again and came up munching. Delicious waterweed, he said. Well, thought Raven, that sounds more natural. He sat on the rock a moment, but Moose Roshi 
said nothing further and just went on feeding. Okay, thought Raven. Maybe I'll come back, but for now I think I'll continue my pilgrimage. So he flew off to see Brown Bear Roshi. What is your opinion, Roshi? asked Raven. Brown Bear made a strange sound, and Raven couldn't tell whether it was a chuckle or a growl. Finally he spoke. He said, something still missing. Raven waited respectfully, but the Roshi remained silent. Well, thought Raven, Brown Bearer seems to know something, and maybe I should stick around for instruction. What is still missing? That's the question. What is missing? When the Buddha looked up and saw the star, there was no distance. There was no distance between himself and the star, between the star and all beings. There was nothing missing. When Mahakashapa saw the flower, he saw himself. As we do more Zazen, we get intimations of this. Some of you are reporting these in these small moments in Doksan, although they might not be quite clear, there are these moments when we feel the truth of this radical intimacy, when time and space drop away, when distance or closeness have no meaning. I was thinking about the nature of suffering. I guess that's the job here. And it hit me as as if for the first time, that suffering itself is rooted in this feeling of distance, of apartness, feeling alone, misunderstood, different than. And what we find, what the Buddha found in that life-changing moment when he so naturally and effortlessly looked up at the morning star was apartness doesn't exist. It only exists in thought, in our perception, but it's not real. And so when even for a brief moment we experience this level of intimacy, it forever changes us. We know for ourselves it is impossible to be separate. Of course, we may feel lonely at times or misunderstood at times, but it's kind of like going to a a scary movie or a haunted house. We might get frightened, but ultimately we know it's not real. In his commentary on this case, Kazan says, though the Buddha had 32 special marks of greatness and 80 kinds of refinements, he kept the form of an old mendicant, no different from anyone else. Um, these 32 marks were sort of a traditional way of delineating an enlightened being. And so we recognize the Buddha's excellence as well as his ordinariness. Right? He lived very, very simply his whole life. How do we find what is most excellent within our own very ordinary life? Within this body that ages, that gets sick, that has feelings, that encounters obstructions, troubling thoughts and competing needs, this nirmanakaya or conditioned body, 
In Zen practice, we talk about being in the world, but not of the world, meaning that we find our liberation right here, and yet we're not caught in here. As practice begins to take a more central role in people's lives, they find that they can become impatient as they enter this territory of seeing their patterns, seeing how caught in anger or feelings of shame or harmful impulses they have, thoughts of lack. They see these things and yet still get caught up in them. So it can be a very uncomfortable place to be. And so the question becomes, what do we do? You know, one, one thing that I've learned, that we learn in Zen, is that nothing should be discarded. Nothing. We learn actually even to use our own pain. The ways we get caught up, we, we see them. And they motivate us to recommit. You know, after the Buddha left home and began studying with some of the teachers of his time, he gained the ability to enter these deep states of concentration, of equanimity, of samadhi. But then, of course, he would always come back out of those states and be right back in this world, in this world that was so dissatisfying for him. But he recognized that, and it motivated him. He knew there had to be a, another way of experiencing this life. Some of us have perhaps a harder time with motivation than the Buddha did. For most of us, we can so easily become distracted and discouraged, or even or convince ourselves that we don't need to practice. I'm fine the way I am. This is why I try to emphasize that the most important thing is to stay with it, no matter what. Whatever it takes, whether we think we get it or whether we think we never will get it. If we could just do that, we would be way ahead of the game. And that is why we come together to practice. We hold this space together for each other recognizing that each one of us has qualities that we can offer, that we can bring to this community. And each of us has a need for support and perhaps also to be challenged on our rightly, tightly held views. In his commentary on this case, Kazan says, those who have sought the way of his teaching have imitated the Buddha's form and manners have used the endowment of the Buddha, and all their doings have always considered the task of enlightenment or task of self-understanding foremost. To imitate the Buddha means that we look not just to what the Buddha said, but to how he lived his life. And we just see that despite his awakening, that he made mistakes, right? We're told about some of these mistakes in the sutras. And he adjusted his teachings, his views. And the reason he was able to so easily do that was that, of course, he knew that he had no fixed form. When we know that we have no fixed form, we can adjust as necessary. 
see that nothing is fixed. Kazan says, even though what the Buddha pointed out and explained in the more than 360 meetings over 49 years was not the same, the various stories, parables, metaphors, and explanations did not go beyond the principle illustrated in the story of his enlightenment. Someone once said that all of the Buddha's teaching was just a footnote to his own awakening. That simple yet radical act of sitting down, quieting the mind. So we can ask, what is the solution to our concerns, our worries, our anxieties? Sit, and then sit some more. And when doubt arises, we sit. We sit with it. Most of us don't do enough, really, sitting to get beyond merely taking the edge off. We think, well, the Buddha was this extraordinary figure, not like me. But thoughts like that are ways that we distance, create that distance between ourselves and our own capacity. So just to end with Kazan from this commentary, he says, However immensely diverse the mountains, rivers, land, and all forms and appearances may be, all of them are in the eye of the Buddha, and you too are standing in the eye of the Buddha. And it is not simply that you are standing there, but the eye has become you. Buddha's eye has become everyone's whole body, each standing tall. You are Buddha's eye. Buddha is your whole body. Thank you very much.